Hello, I'm Derek Duncan, architecture editor at Golf Digest Magazine, and you're listening to the Feed the Ball podcast. This is episode 80. The volume of research and study devoted to the first 30 years of golf architecture in the U.S. compared to other eras is enormous. In academic terms, it would be analogous to the number of historians specializing in the Civil War compared to those specializing in the Korean War. And similarly, for the last two decades at least, nothing in golf design happens without real-time accounting and commentary by websites, online forums, blogs, club members, podcasts, and social media. Between the first heavily researched period and another that's being extemporaneously revealed, are the less investigated decades of golf design between World War II and the 1990s. Though spanning 50 years and an extraordinary number of courses, there's a relative lack of scholarship invested in it, nothing near to the amount of attention paid to the 19-teens and 20s. What we know or assume we know about mid-century design is often more impressionistic than inquisitive, and perhaps more apocryphal than analytical. There are reasons for this, but the primary one seems to be indifference. Modern analysts just don't find much of interest in the courses of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and the same would probably be said for the 1940s, but so few courses were built during that decade. The architecture of this time frame presumes to be lacking the creativity in full dimensions of what came before it and what's also come more recently. The game and subsequent design philosophies grew more linear in the post-war period, and building courses became exercises more of science and efficiency than art and innovation. The result is that the majority of them became either anodyne or excessively difficult. Or so the story goes. The irony is that the post-war period of the 1950s and 60s saw the greatest increase in participation and number of new players joining the game in its history. Though many of the courses built in these years were considered groundbreaking, gorgeous, the pinnacle of design, and worthy of being compared to the great courses of the past, very few have maintained the same appraisal in recent decades. Through the 80s and well into the 90s, courses by Robert Trent Jones and Dick Wilson, in particular, could be found up and down various hundred greatest lists. Today, they're virtually exiled. Contemporary architects usually hold admiration, if not adoration, for Wilson's work. But to the point, aside from a few courses like Bay Hill and Doral, which have hosted PGA Tour events in recent memory, his best work at Pine Tree in Florida, La Costa in California, Laurel Valley in Pennsylvania, Deepdale and Meadowbrook in New York, and Coldstream and NCR in Ohio are all relatively unknown to mainstream contemporary golfers. Why this is is a complicated topic, one that we're going to explore today with Joe Jemsik, the golf designer and third-generation operator of Cog Hill Golf and Country Club near Chicago, one of the country's largest and most beloved public golf facilities founded by Joe's grandfather, who shares the same name, in 1951. In particular, we're going to discuss the life and work of Dick Wilson, who the elder Jemsek hired to build Coghill No. 4, affectionately, or ominously, known as Dubs Dread, for decades considered one of America's best public courses and a fixture on America's 100 Greatest Courses ranking. The Jemsek family's relationship with Wilson, and even more so with Joe Lee, Wilson's younger partner who continued to build courses into the 2000s, makes Joe Jemsek one of the most knowledgeable people in the business about Wilson and his design ideals. In fact, the family is in possession of Lee's archives, containing probably as much information about Wilson as currently exists. Most of what Wilson kept firsthand, reportedly not much, has been lost or was destroyed after he died in 1965. Wilson was a complicated man who bridged two eras, beginning his career as a builder working for William Flynn and Howard Toomey in the 1920s and 30s, most notably at Marion and Shinnecock Hills, 
and then emerging after the hiatus of World War II as one of the country's most sought-after architects of the 50s and early 60s. At core, he was a builder, a dirt guy and technician who was critical and independent. He held few romantic notions about the classical-era courses that are revered in totality today. He saw golf course construction the same way engineers view building construction, as puzzles and solutions that are only as worthy as their craftsmanship and strong as their weakest elements. And he saw weaknesses readily. At the same time, he was a good player with an appreciation for hitting not just the good shot, but the right shot, and his courses insisted that players must be able to do both in order to score well. He saw that the modern game at the higher levels was and would continue to be one played through the air, and he designed to that technological standard with the expectation of shaped drives and high shots into elevated greens. He certainly wasn't wrong projecting this as the future of golf. He bunkered his usually dog-legged holes as aggressively as any designer ever has, setting up distilled maniacal equations of pure strategy, angles, and distance. The writer Herbert Ward Wind once described his designs as, quote, the dramatic exposition of sure golf values, unquote. It's no wonder Ben Hogan loved playing his courses. Joe and I speak in depth about Wilson, Lee, their designs and legacy, and how they may each represent something more relevant to today's golfer than most people deep in architectural spheres give them credit for. As I said, Joe not only understands Wilson and Lee and their work better than probably anyone, he cares about it just as much. After we were done recording, he mentioned he wasn't sure his appreciation for Wilson's skills and philosophies had come across, and he wanted to express them more succinctly. He wrote, quote, I enjoy their golf courses because I feel in control. I think most average golfers find the same comfort in their designs as well. Players arrive on the tee and understand what is asked in regards to shot selection. If they can accomplish the first task, they are rewarded with a clear line of sight or angle on the next. Even in Dick's most difficult courses, the player never finds themselves at the mercy of the design without undue cause. The hazards may compound, but it's only after a failure on the first task. The shots, while demanding, are rarely improbable. I think maybe that's what's most understood about the work. The visual aspect gives the player all the information up front, and it's up to them to hit the shot. In that regard, it's maybe more player-friendly than the Neo-Link style of the modern era, with super-wide corridors and open green fronts, because the player doesn't know how to approach the hole without professional guidance or experience." Unquote. We'll get into all of this and more, so sit back and enjoy an hour of Dick Wilson. But first, we actually begin the conversation on another note, the revival of an old course in the Florida backcountry with an important heritage. So I've uh, I got one pretty interesting product down in uh in Lake Wales, Florida, which is the old Lake Wales Country Club, which is you know it's definitely a Seth Rayner course. It was his layout. You know we've got the articles from the twenties that say you know Seth Rayner's opening the first nine, and then he opens the second nine opens I think the day he dies, the twenty sixth in January in nineteen twenty six. I think it's January 26, 1926. Um, and I don't think he attends either opening, but uh, you can see the templates where they were routed, but I don't know that they were ever really built. This is the, the one that, Yeah, this is the golf course that they thought was a Donald Ross course for a while, isn't it? 
oh yeah, we got Donald Ross was the logo for 10 or 15 years and his like his silhouette. And then everything on the golf course says Donald Ross, which is really funny because there's about a half a dozen of them down there in that kind of that sand belt south of Orlando that are all Donald Ross courses. And most of them have been proved not to be Donald Ross. That's, a, that's an interesting thing. You know, I, I think what I surmise is that, you know, so much golf history was kind of lost in the, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. You know, a lot of clubs, uh, clubhouses burned down. People just didn't keep good records. And when we came out of that period, I think many golf courses just kind of looked around and said, well, who was around in the 1920s when our course was built? And they just kind of picked Donald Ross because he designed so many golf courses. He probably did do work in that area and obviously throughout Florida. And yeah. <laughs> everybody, there's just a lot, there are more than, there's probably like a, a dozen courses in Florida, if not more, that, you know, Palatka would be one where they, you know, they think it's a Donald Ross course, but it's probably not. But he just was the name to attach to a golf course. I don't think there's anything malicious or, you know, some, yeah, uh, no, no, it's just behind it. It's just they, that's that was the information that they had to go with. Yeah, uh, so he does what's called Lake Pierce. Ross does a Lake Pierce golf course in Lake Wales, Florida, which is about three miles away. The location was about three miles away um, for where the, the Lake Wales Country Club is, and uh, it is a very short-lived golf course. And then they have this picture from twenty-six of a man that could be Donald Ross looks Donald Ross esque. I mean, if it was a wanted poster, you would definitely say, Oh yeah, that could have been that guy, sir. You know, that was the man who robbed the bank. And uh, so they, they chose that and they ran with it. Even though the back nine was closed and it doesn't reopen until the sixties. <laughs> and the sort of the irony about this is that it's much more interesting if it actually is a Seth Rayner course from a marketing perspective, probably from a golf perspective, just because there's so fewer Rayner designed golf courses, and especially in Florida, that if they if if anybody had really been paying attention or knew much about Seth Rayner in the whenever the seventies, I'm I'm mm-hmm. guessing when this golf course started branding themselves as the Donald Ross course, if not sooner, if anybody had known who Rayner was, that would have been much more had much more cachet. It certainly does now. Uh, so are, will the will the golf course uh yeah, de- describe what you're involved with there and, and what that's going to look like, the renovation. You know, that is really something in in process right now. Um, the ownership has bought this at, you know, at auction. He bought the one that's just north of it. And we've looked at everything from a new lo- clubhouse location, running 36 holes out of the same clubhouse. Um to going down to only the 18 that's that's currently operating, um, you know, doing some quote unquote restoration work. Um, you know, that being said, you know, the Brits was there, but it's no longer there. It's been moved. You know, the the short is there, the cape is there. There was a punch bowl green at one point in time that looks nothing like a punch bowl today. Um, so we'd really be more along the faux-duration type model. Uh, or recreation than a restoration. You know, it's just, there's nothing, we can't go back to what it was because there's not enough information about it. Um, But I still think that the heritage and all the rest of that, it'd still be one of only maybe three or four public Raynard courses. And uh, 
we do get a lot of guys who will come stop by and play on their trip back and forth to stream song. Cause it's kind of an easy, it's not along the route, but you know, if you were going to add another day and you wanted to do it for 50 or $60 versus, you know, $600 a day, what you're spending at stream song, it's a pretty easy add on. But you think that the Lake Wales complex, even, you know, whether it's 18 or 36 holes is, is there any uh, element to that overnight stay or, or can it just function as a standalone golf facility? No, we're definitely, the, the owner wants to add like a, a smaller boutique hotel and they've got this giant ballroom in the, the former country club clubhouse um, that, you know, would lend itself to bigger events. So I think that there's definitely a business model for, you know, a middle-class type country club experience uh, on the local level and something nice stay in play, you know, not several hundred dollars a night type of venue, but something that was someone was looking for a different, a different price point. Yeah. And who is the owner? A guy named Frank Gandhi. And he's a, an entrepreneur, a businessman, a New Jersey. Um, he's got some other franchises that he owns and he just saw this chunk of real estate, Florida, that he was going to get into, you know, he bid in the auction. I think the, uh, the auctioneer kind of introduced him to it. And I think he was buying some other old golf courses that were destined to be redeveloped. And he saw this as a big chunk of property and Hey, what, 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 what were the options there? Did you have a relationship with him or, or how did you get involved? I did not. It was kind of a referral. Um, you know, it was, he probably had more questions in regards to golf operations than design when we got introduced. Mm -hmm. And so you know, I remember I actually went down there. I had a different client that was looking at it when it, before it went to auction. So I remember masking up and going down, you know, in the middle, in the height of COVID to take a look and ride around this golf course. And uh, I came back and my ownership group ultimately decided they didn't, they weren't really into, as I, Florida cows and oranges, they wanted Florida beaches. Yeah. yeah. And uh, most of Florida is cows and oranges. By the way. Yes. <laughs> so uh, they were decided not to move forward. And then the auction happened. And then I, you know, kind of solicited slash got referred to the new ownership. And um, so I, my role is kind of dual at this point in time. I'm doing a lot of management consulting and setting up just some golf operation standards and maintenance standards. Cause there was about a year where the golf course was just, it was just being kept alive, you know, barely, you know, it was being irrigated and that's about it. You know, we're going to hit, we're going to hit it with fertilizer for the Bermuda grass will be the first time that Bermuda grass really sees fertilizer in 15 or 18 months. So, but the greens are actually in great shape because they've been maintaining the greens the whole time, but everything else got let go. And then last fall, we just, we threw overseed down. And so we have product to sell through the winter. And that, you know, again, it's product. It's, you know, that's a different term than usually gets used in the Feed the Ball podcast um, because it's a, it's a business for, for this gentleman. It's not, there's no passion. That can work in, in many different ways. Maybe, maybe that's a, an asset to, a, a, you know, because it is going to take something extraordinary probably to get a place like this to work rather than just 
golf dreams, you know, just this, this sort of romantic notion of reviving a Seth Rainer course. Uh, that's nice, but you know, there's, there's going to be a heavy lift and, and a lot of investment involved if this is going to come out the right way. Agreed. And everyone says, Oh man, if I known I could have, I mean, at, at auction, it sells for six fifty seven twenty five plus the buyer's premium. You know, if, if you told everybody in the, I remember, you know, looking at the golf blogs and things like that, um, you know, when we were losing a lot of golf courses a decade ago and everyone would be, oh man, how can we let this Donald Ross course go? And maybe we could just get 10 guys together with a hundred thousand. We could buy this place and, and, and it'd be great. It'd be amazing to have this Donald Ross country club or this Seth Raynard country club, but it's a whole different story when you write that check. And this is the course, uh, you know, Connor Lewis, I'm sure. Uh, he's the, I might need- okay. Well, Connor Lewis is the, um, the, the man behind society of golf course, golf historians on Twitter. Um, but okay, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great guy. He has a podcast talking golf podcast and, and he's been championing Lake Wales for, for years now. That, that's how I first heard of it is through him. I don't know, four or five years ago, at least when he, he was adamant that this was a Seth Rayner golf course. Uh, and he would turn out, I think I'm, I'm assuming that he was right that it is a Seth Rayner, but um, this is kind of a nice coda to that story. It's it's been a long time coming, and it'll be very fascinating to see if you know. It's it's pretty amazing that you know how far we've come in in golf, where the prospect of a Seth Rayner golf course could get enough people potentially excited that they would divert a vacation or take a day out of their itinerary going to Streamsong or or somewhere else, and and there's enough interest that they would want potentially to spend a day on this revived rainer-esque golf course that has a lot of history behind it we've it's a it's cool that golf we've kind of gotten to this place where that is is a motivating golf you know motivation versus other reasons why people play golf and i think they're gonna you know even when they come there today they find a really enjoyable routing it it goes from the lows to the highs and back and tumbles back and forth unlike most golf courses in florida um you know, there's a lot of big features and character that uh, the conditioning currently leaves something to be desired. I mean, the greens put really pretty good, um, but everything else is a little rough around the edges. But they do see, they can see the diamond in the rough. It doesn't take a lot of vision to see the diamond in the rough, be it Rainer, Ross, Dick Wilson, Joe Jemsek, you know, any designer you want to use. Um, they can see that there's a good golf course laying there that just someone's got to, sh- to bring it a little bit farther along. Well, maybe that's a good way to segue into kind of re- what I was really interested in having a discussion about with you, Joe, is, is you know, the Dick Wilson era and Dick Wilson in particular. And I'm wondering, you know, we're talking about Seth Rayner and, and finding this golf course that was, you know, maybe amongst his last that he designed and it had lived in obscurity or or – uh, misappropriated lineage for so many years. Do you foresee a day when uh, a Dick Wilson design might sort of have the same cachet, or is that ship sailed? And and we, you know, the judgments about Wilson and RTJ have already been kind of been settled. I think we, yes and no. I think there's always going to be the place for the Dick Wilson mindset, the championship golf course. Um, you know, again, we go back to the financial viability about, you know, what we're doing in golf to, to keep all the people we've reintroduced to the game over the last two years. And 
you know, the historic Dick Wilson golf course doesn't really factor into what modern golf is. I think that's where, you know, we struggle a lot probably in pure restoration work is, you know, we're not, we don't really want to restore something that was a hundred years old. If it didn't, doesn't make sense for something today. Um, you know, one question was, oh, there's always a story, famous story about Dick about, you know, if he built ladies tees or where they should put the ladies tee on this hole. And, you know, he infamously stated something along the lines, well, I don't build women's tees. And if I did, they'd be halfway down the fairway. So at least they were walking half the time and wouldn't slow down the play. Um, <laughs> and uh, spoken like a man of his generation. Exactly. The funny, and I sort of look at it this way. He's not half wrong. I mean, today we're putting the, the, fo- the forward most tees are halfway down the hole. And people are really enjoying golf from there. Now, you know, while his remark was out of sexism, um, you know, the reality is that's that's what we're doing today. I guess one of the things when we're talking about, you know, the, the current age of renovation and and when we say this, we're I think most of the time just kind of we refer generally to courses of the 1920s, you know, the, the pre-World War II era golf courses that have received such brilliant renovations and we're polishing off these old jewels and there's a whole cottage industry of of renovationists and and restoration designers right now who are quote-unquote experts in all these different styles of design and particular architects but what they what the best of these renovations and restorations do do is they peel back the layers they open up the landscape and in general though not always they reveal a type of golf course that is very well, functional and very open to lots of different styles of play. Now, that wasn't true for every golf course built in the 1920s. There were some very demanding. They had their own version of championship-style golf courses as as well, and their their thoughts on on how particular shots should be hit. But but in general, what we notice are like broader golf courses with fewer trees and and different avenues of play. Whereas Dick Wilson, to use him as this example that we're talking about, had a very particular approach to golf and and thinking about golf. Uh, in a certain way along those championship lines and testing uh, that testing mentality. You know, I hate that word in design is like, you know, it's, it's a great test um, because most people don't like to take tests. You like to go out and just hit, hit a ball and, and it's not always a, a, a pass or fail uh, situation, but he did, did have that specific, specific approach to golf course design where he laid out golf holes that had to be executed to be played properly. And I, and I, so that in that sense, I, I wonder if, if he precludes, at least in this moment, if, if that style of architecture precludes him ever being sort of a popular designer, the way that Seth Rayner has become a, a popular designer. Yeah. You know, some of it is fashion. Um, and we look at, you know, we always, you talk about testing, you know, we always, the U S open is kind of the ultimate test of golf. That's always the moniker, right? It's, um, but it's kind of like taking the SAT, you know, you're penalized for wrong answers and they don't, there's not a lot of exploration. There's, there's right and wrong. And, you know, a lot of Dick Wilson courses, especially the second shot in the greens concepts or greens complexes, um, you know, you're asked to hit one specific shot. There really aren't options, alternate paths to get you, safely onto the putting service near the putting near the pin. And that kind of design is maybe not ideal to the majority of the people who play. Yeah. It's very, 
difficult to think of any, you know, too many golf courses built in the last 25 years that kind of embrace that pure shot making demand, you know, where, where you're out, you, you know, you have to hit, you know, really eloquent shots to be able to get the ball on the putting surface. You have to control your ball. You know, it's really what we've seen more often is in the case, whether it's in restorations, like I just said, or new courses is the opposite. You know, there's a tremendous amount of freedom and flexibility and an ability to navigate your own way across the terrain. And Dick Wilson was, you know, point to point, you know, he, every, every position on the whole was defended in some way. And whether it was on the inside of his, you know, he built dog legs, you know, almost everything was a dog leg and you know he'd, he'd bunker the inside sometimes bracketed with an outside bunker so you had to notch a drive in and the greens were almost always incredibly well defended elevated set at an angle often you know two three seven bunkers around the putting surface so you know having demanding that you hit aerial shots into it so it's just kind of hard to to see that that embrace given where we are right now in 2022 yeah, I mean, when we look, you know, you out and play some of the new, newest modern golf courses. I mean, the shots into the greens are as demanding, if not more demanding, um, than anything you would have found from Dick Wilson. Um, but it's done with false fronts and slopes and long, short grass that carries the ball a long way from, um, you know, missed shots. You know, I'm a, I grew up on a Dick Wilson golf course. You know, I played hundreds of rounds out there. And, you know, I was taught to play golf by my mother who, you know, was couldn't hit it 180 yards to save her life, um, but broke par in a tournament, you know, in tournaments and played to a single digit handicap for a large portion of her life. And I watched her pick her way around the Dick Wilson golf course with 108 bunkers on it. And for her, she had, she grew up or she learned to play par fours were played like par fives. And she knew that she, she wanted to make a par. She just had to get up and down (laughs) or she had to use those very narrow windows that were, you know, utilized for maintenance and access points. And, you know, if it was 10 feet wide that she was good enough to hit it in between those bunkers. But I realized she was probably a a rarity in that. How would you characterize from what you've noticed about Wilson's designs and we can explore the whole concept of, of Wilson as, as architect and his, his background a little bit more, but just how would you characterize the putting services that he designed? Are there any broad takeaways that you've noticed? You know, the, the concept is, as they were explained to me by Joe and, and others who worked with Dick is, you know, the center was for member play and the corners for championship. And uh, that's, Probably the reason that, you know, so many of the tour tournaments were set up on Dick Wilson golf courses for a long time is because they could come in for the week and they could, with a setup alone, speeds and pinning and tee positions, they could turn a member course into a tournament or a championship course. And again, it was, you know, those elbows, those corners of the greens that he, you know, tournament committees could could hide pins around and then you really had to execute shots not only to find the putting surface but then find the the proper area mm-hmm. uh, to score you know yeah, yeah. yeah there's something actually you know 
as much as we like playable golf courses, I'm speaking generally, not maybe not everybody does, but as much as we like the the freedom that we have in in so many different types of golf courses right now, and the extra width that have, has been reclaimed on older courses, there is something very, you know, elegant about the idea of a design asking players to hit certain types of shots and and seeing it as you know you have 14 drives that you're going to hit today and let's see how many you can execute you know to get yourself in position to unlock these 14 different approach shots you know so there's sort of like a puzzle or a riddle that if you're a, a decent player uh, I could see that there would be an attraction to that you know everything is everything is sort of a an opportunity to advance to the next stage of that hole with the with the proper shot and then you try to put your next shot on the green to give yourself a putt for, um so i mean i i think that, that that element still exists in in the golfer language but i don't you know that was sort of the driving mantra of of everything that was built by so many people, I shouldn't say everything, but by so many people in the 1950s and 60s, and we've just it, we just happen to have come a long way from that point. That that is not the standard of what a great golf course is anymore. Even though there's something kind of if you're Ben Hogan, that's that's uh, that's exactly what you how you judge a great golf course. Yeah, I mean these were shot makers golf courses. They, you know they were asking there was a holes that you had to hit a fade or else maybe you couldn't. You couldn't hit driver. Um, you know, you either took the hazard or you played away from it. And I think, you know, for regular players, regular golfers, like I'm sure it was Pete who said, you know, the ordinary golfer would play Mount Everest if you put a pin on top of it. But um, most of the time people can't, they can't stay away from the, the challenge. They have to go for it. They, the layup just doesn't even exist to them. Even if it's laying there wide open, the whole left side of the hole is open. I'm, you know, you're always going to take that right side over the bunker, you know, near the lake. Everyone's going to try to hit that shot. And that's what Dick did every hole, every shot. There was, um, you know, here's, here's where you got to hit it. And really the key on those golf courses, I think, that, that made them successful for so long was you saw everything. And especially, I think, maybe coming from the golf courses that were before then, um, you know, visibility was less of a, a critical element on a lot of stuff. And it probably, especially after we go through the Depression and then World War II, the golf courses were probably pretty bland looking, you know, the, probably not much sand in the bunkers. And Dick Wilson and, and Jones come through with these big splashy hazards again. And it really excites people about playing golf compared to a flat sand bunker at a grass face. Yeah, you, you can certainly look at the bunkering alone and understand how that was. Well, to, to, as you said, it, it, that had disappeared for a while. Certainly the, the bunkering in the 1920s amongst the top designers was, you know, as, as good as it gets, uh, aesthetically at least. But you know that this was a revival of making an impression through hazards you know even water hazards with with both of these designers and just to sh just to kind of illustrate how well received this style of golf was how popular it was how the the people in uh, you know in from 1955 to 1985 
appreciated what what this you know this represented the the pinnacle of golf design this these were the the best ideas the brightest minds the the highest level of execution um in 1985 wilson had nine courses in the golf digest america's 100 greatest golf courses i mean including cog hill which was a member of the 100 greatest courses and uh robert trent jones had 18 so just between the two of them they had over a quarter of the 100 greatest golf courses in america and this is also counting you know donald ross and aw tillinghast and 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 you know pete Dye was on the scene by then so so that's a pretty staggering number of golf courses that they had and it's a reflection of you know speaking of how tastes and styles change this is a reflection of, of how that philosophy of golf course design and the presentation of, of those hazards and and those greens and those features how popular that was and if you look at those those golf courses in particularly how many are on the ocean none how many are in you know exotic mountains very few you know the hills of west west virginia maybe or virginia might have been a couple um, but it was really, it was all about golf and, you know, the, the game, the challenge of the game. And, uh, you know, if you look at the rankings today, while golf is still very much the forefront, you look at the scenery around it is as important, um, in the rankings. I mean, Joe Lee talked about, you know, um, I was very excited. I found a, a quote from the 1973 PGA annual book of golf. And uh, he talks about, you know, that there's the top courses in the country. Everybody's got the same dozen or so on the list. And then the others kind of come in and out with the publicity. And uh, I think that's probably pretty true. I mean, you looked at 85, it was, what was considered a great golf course was it was challenging and they demanded these different shots. That's how we kind of rated it. Yeah. And tournament history has, you know, has always meant a lot to the rankings, maybe less now than ever before. But, you know, if, if you'd hosted, you know, major championships or, or had a reputation for, for being a, a, a great tournament golf course, I mean, that was what, you know, the, the almost any golfer, equated to greatness you know if you could host the best players in the world and get famous that way then it was by definition greatness <laughs> the other thing that that stands out about this period in time and i think you touched on it you know talking about the the the, the way wilson and trent jones used their bunkering and they weren't alone others did as well but if you think about from 1955 to 1965, 1970s, the if you think about the extraordinary amount of growth in golf courses, I mean, we we started building in the in the mid to late 50s. We finally started to supply inventory that had been lacking since World War II. You know, people in the early 50s, people who were getting into golf, but they couldn't find a place to play. Courses sold out their tee times. People stood in line. I mean, there just there weren't enough golf courses in a very legitimate way. And then by the late 50s, that's picking up and we're starting to, to meet demand, building around 150 golf courses a year. And by the early 60s, the United States are opening, you know, between three and 400 golf courses a year. Now, all of those golf courses, you think about how many designers can we name from that period? You know, a smart 
somebody who, who's into architecture can probably come up with maybe 10, 12 names, but those guys didn't build all of them. So that, and my point is that we're building so many golf courses and so many courses were built by uh, people and, and construction firms that we've never heard of. So when Dick Wilson, who designed, you might know the answer, I'm not sure how many courses he designed, but when a Dick Wilson course opened up, because there weren't that many, he didn't work on that many at a time, or Robert Trent Jones, who did build a lot, but they were still, um, you know, represented a small fraction of all the golf courses that are open. They had good clients too. So their golf courses stood out. They looked, I mean, they looked so much different than the average courses that were popping up in, in communities all across the country. So they were real showpieces. Almost everything they designed, uh, especially almost everything Dick Wilson designed, was was probably just so much more impressive and so much more noteworthy than everything else that was being built. And it goes back to you know his strategies, the land, the owners, the bunkering, all these things factor into this incredible wow factor when these guys are debuting these golf courses in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, we look at the visual aspects of those golf courses and color photography is going to come into play here. And, you know, in the early 60s, things are, you know, you're really starting to see the contrast in the new golf courses. Um, And I think having the budgets and to build those things, they were building a lot of resorts. I think that those resorts probably pushed the envelope on what was championship golf through the publicity and the publications. And then, like you said, the tournaments being the, uh, the acknowledgement of what was a championship golf course. There's so much that's been, I think so much more has been written about Trent Jones over the years. You know, there've been biographies and he, he was a, a pretty prolific writer himself his sons, you know, knew him better than anybody, and, and they've carried on his legacy. He's a very well-known commodity. I've always been under the impression that Dick Wilson is far lesser known, and and perhaps what we do know about him has become sort of um, a caricature or mythologized in certain ways. And do you? I mean, do you agree with that? Do you think that we that for all for whatever we do know about Wilson? we actually don't know very much about him because that, you know, there wasn't, there just isn't a lot out there to study up on or research regarding him and his output. Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, I mean, uh, Ed Sherman did a really nice piece and they called trouble genius in regards to Dick and um, his history. And he wasn't generally a very nice person. And uh, that's kind of, all the way around, people agree with that. Uh, you know, my grandfather was a friend of his and enjoyed him, but they had other passions, uh, mostly horses, um, in common. And, uh, you know, there, there are numerous stories where, you know, Joe Lee probably becomes his business partner, mostly because Dick didn't actually want to deal with the clients. He didn't want a glad hand and smile for the camera. I mean, it was really funny. I They were somebody was opening a, a new renovation on a, it was Paul Mayer. They were redoing their Dick Wilson Garth and they yeah. reached out to me. They wanted a photograph of Dick. And it, it's really a challenge to find a photograph of him that he's even looking at the camera. I mean, he's, he's in pictures, but he's rarely looking at the camera. He wasn't, um, 
you know, the media hound, he wasn't out there to publicize. He was out there to work. And then again, he dies fairly young. So in this industry, you don't really sort of your prime time, your primary career is in your 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, that's when you get the best sites, you have the most contacts. Um, and he dies at 61. And then in, uh, you know, towards the end, again, his drinking was inhibiting his ability to do the work. Um, there was a story where Dick Wilson came back, I, I, that Joe Lee told me, as uh, Dick Wilson came back from his work at Kai, he come back from a trip, came back down to Florida, and he said that that's the fanciest public course he'd ever been to. They won't even let him in the clubhouse there. He can't believe the way they treated him. And, and Joe Lee's, he's puzzled by this. He says, well, every time I go there, Mr. Jemsek has me in for, we have a wonderful lunch in the clubhouse. And uh, I, I don't know why they didn't allow you in the clubhouse. And the hindsight was my grandfather knew that if Dick came into the clubhouse for lunch, he'd start drinking and they wouldn't get any work done in the afternoon. And so, you know, his, his way to keep Dick working was to keep him sober. Um, and so I think, you know, not every client is going to go to those lengths to do that. Um, you know, we look for magazine articles and, you know, Herbert Warren Wynn spoke or wrote really wonderful articles about the golf courses, but never really about the man. Yeah, I wonder if that's because he was just closed off and he wasn't a good subject for kind of biographical sketches. Uh, there, there's a, a, a wonderful story from 1962 by the, the really underrated writer Gwilyn Brown called The Dueling Architects. And it's kind of a profile on Wilson and Trent Jones from that time. Very fruitful time in both of their careers. But uh, elsewhere, you know, he's, <laughs> I've, I've seen him in different publications described almost like as a bipolar kind of person. Like a, one writer said he, he was warm, rugged, direct, likable, and volatile. <laughs> like, like all, in, all in the same sentence. But it, it makes me wonder, there must have been something about him for him to continue to be hired, for him to continue to get commissions all these years. Um, was it just the you know his reputation as as being an amazing architect was that so important uh, to clients at that time you know as it always is obviously but other things you know usually a relationship and and the ability to work with people that you want to be around drives any business you know maybe more than anything else um do you have any insight into like how he kept getting jobs if he was such an irascible personality i think it was again it was that his first job that really brings him notoriety, um, you know, is the West Palm Beach golf course, country club, municipal, whatever. Um, it had a lot of names over the years. And now I think it's the PGA's new headquarters in Florida with Gil Hans's project. Um, you know, that it's kind of the first new golf course in Florida in a long time and gets a lot of success. And then, you know, a lot of these projects, you know, are in far off places for the majority of, uh, you know, people didn't travel with the same uh, ease back then. So, you know, he builds a golf course in Havana, Cuba, and it's sort of, you know, this, you know, Oceanside, 
host of a tour event, but no one's ever actually going to go see that golf course or so few people are going to go see it. And the people who do, you know, it, it, it runs to the, you know, this is the kind of golf course we want to have. We want to have for our membership. Um, and again, it was, it must've been what could sell. And it was, um, you look Doral, Bay Hill, La Costa, Callaway Gardens. These are all these high end kind of resorts coming into the, out of the late fifties and the sixties. Um, and success just breeds success. I have a feeling was the case. And on top of that, Dick delivered a really good product um, or he had, you know, collaborators so that he probably didn't have to be the front man after the, after the contract signing, you know, he could just go out there and do the work. Yeah. That was, I was, you know, obviously you can go back to even his mentor, you know, William Flynn and, or the way that, you know, golf courses were built, you know, early on, but as much more so than Trent Jones or, or probably maybe I'm stepping out here, but maybe as much as that, as anybody from his era, from the, from the mid century designers, uh, Wilson was uh, like a real design build type of operation. I think that's what we'd call it now. He was more comfortable as you just alluded to being on site. And he was, he was very, you know, when he wasn't drinking, I think he was very involved in the production of the golf courses, especially the construction side of it. And, you know, he has expertise in, in so many different areas and just being out in the dirt was where he was comfortable. And you, you couldn't, you wouldn't say that about Trent Jones. Trent Jones was much more comfortable, you know, on a drafting board or meeting with clients um, and turned over the operation side of it uh, to other, you know, his own company in, in many cases, but, but whoever was building the golf course. So that was a, that's another real distinguishing feature about Wilson is that he was, he sort of, uh, foreshadowed the design build era now where you have a designer who's really good at being technical and he, he uses the best quality talent around him, you know, to build the golf course. And they're highly involved in every step of, of the construction. I think that was part of, I think, again, why Dick gets hired is because the quality of all of his courses are pretty consistent at a high quality. And that's probably because he's controlling the production, if you will. You know, he probably learns that from when he's working again, Toomey and Flynn, they're building and designing the golf courses themselves. Um, and then he kind of partners with the Troop Brothers, which again, controlling that construction method um, where Ross was, you know, sending plans out the door and had foremen, but, you know, the varying amounts of quality in the construction and the, the follow-through. Um, and then Dick's real secret was his kind of, his shaping crew, if you will, um, you know, referred to by Jolie and others as the all-stars, which were basically former caddies from some of the best golf courses in Florida, like Seminole, um, you know, like Indian Creek, that he sort of poached in the summers and took them all around the country, all around the world to do the final shaping of the bunkers. And so I think it was that quality control that, that gave the golf courses sort of every golf course he built was of equal quality. Yeah. And, and I did not know that about the all-stars until just recently when I was kind of boning up for this talk with you and we have to give credit to, or I I'll give credit to Ron Witten who wrote a book called about Joe Lee um, and that's where I found it in there. And, and a lot of these stories about Wilson kind of come from Joe Lee. And, but yeah, they had this shaping crew that was very much like uh, Bill Core or Tom Doak 
you know, or a designer like that would have today who traveled with them and, and did all, a lot of the finished work and bunker shaping. And so when we look at these, you know, bunkers from the early 60s and, and they're so striking, I still think they're striking, you know, that it, it often case might have been due to these former caddies, you know, one guy just did the shovel, you know, a manual just kind of chopping the, the edge of the, the bunker edge. Other guys, you know, one was working a box blade, but they all had their kind of specialty. And Wilson and Lee were smart enough to take these guys out on the job with them and let them do their thing. Well, you know, usually it's, again, we all know it's, it's the kind of the, the last bit of the, the last couple of feet that really make the difference. And using the former caddies, they already knew what a great golf course could, should look like. And they were familiar with golf where a lot of times we were going into these exotic locations um, and no one's ever been on a golf course before. You know, they don't know what it's supposed to look like when it's done. That's a great point. And uh, so you kind of brought that, that talent in and uh, you know, they're in Witten's book and I've heard other stories about, you know, this was a pretty rough crew of guys that were, you know, they were working hard and, and living hard and, you know, getting in trouble for doing what they had always been doing as caddies. Um, you know, Witten's book's got a story about Joe doing a golf course for the Baptist uh, church and the one guy drinking too much and getting in trouble and them sending him away. And I think that was Quince. And uh, there's this very similar story here in Chicago. They were doing what was called Plum Tree Golf Course. Um, which is about 90 miles from Chicago. My grandfather's banker saw all the money my grandfather was making and said, maybe I should build one of these golf course things. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. <laughs> and so he hires Joe Lee to do it. And it's called, um, you know, it had 90 bunkers. And uh, there was a very similar story where Quince got in trouble, you know, drinking and had to came home early and Joe said, what happened? He's like, well, I think the job's done. And then Joe would go back two weeks later and the job was not nearly done, but Quince wasn't welcome in, you know, Harvard, Illinois anymore. <laughs> he got run out of most of the ta- most of the taverns and whatnot. So, so um, you must've heard stories like passed down through your family. What attracted your grandfather to Wilson and not somebody else? There were other prominent, you know, fairly well-known architects working in the Chicago area at that time. Like, you know, we mentioned Robert Bruce Harris, David Gill, Ed Packard were all kind of around. They were more local than Wilson was. So what was the connection? Again, it was, I think they, I, you know, it was horses. I mean, that's, it was, you know, it was the track. My grand, it probably started with horses. And again, my grandfather, you know, would winter in Florida and they would kind of close up the golf courses. And, you know, my father talks about, you know, you know, one Catholic school is as good as the next. So they would end up in Florida and my dad would end up in a new Catholic school and for the winter. And uh, so that's kind of where he meets Wilson. And then um, much later on, you know, working with Pete and talking to Pete and he remembers Dick Wilson and my grandfather coming through Urbana, Ohio, because his father was also a big fan of horse racing and, uh, you know, so it was kind of birds of a feather in that regards. And uh, so that's where the relationship goes, starts. And uh, he hires Dick in 62 um, to build a championship public course. And uh, basically he takes the, what was the number one course at Cog Hill. He splits it into two. So he's got, he puts nine holes in the middle of 
the returning nines. And now, you know, there's 30, there's 54 holes at the golf course. And he, you know, he convinced my grandfather to have two championship courses, but my grandfather's really not happy with the results because he still built them kind of as public golf courses. And, uh, you know, they're nice, they're enjoyable. You can definitely tell the difference between the new holes and the old holes. Um, but it was at that point when my grandfather sort of said, no, I want Dick, I want the real thing. I want, I want Lacoste. I want Bay Hill. I want the same as everybody else. So they build a fourth course, which ends up being Cog Hill. Yeah. And uh, the Dubstrid course. Now, was, and was that the idea was like this was going to be, you know, the model course of the era? It was just going to be like a tournament worthy course that would instantly, you know, legitimize the operation and, and be something that, uh, you know, the public player would, sh- you know, be, be proud to go get their brain speed in on. Yeah, it was, it sort of stems from my grandfather plays in the, Western Open in Edina when he was the golf professional at St. Andrews, which is another course that he purchased from his future father-in-law. But, um, and he realized that all the guys in the clubhouse were like, hey, man, what's it like to play Medina? What amazing country club. And they knew that all these plumbers and electricians and you know these guys had money in their pocket. They were never going to get to get into a private country club. They were never going to play a, a championship course. And so it was always his dream to build this championship course. And so he started doing things that were country club like in conditioning and in the clubhouse to serve real food. And, um, you know, they put carpet in the clubhouse, which was never been done before uh, to put carpet in a public clubhouse. Um, you know, things that we sort what of luxury, guess, you know, what a luxury. Exactly. They serve top shelf liquor. I mean, it doesn't sound, it sounds uh, almost foolish now, but I guess those were revolutionary ideas. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he came at it from a thing, like if they give me a dollar to play 18 holes on an average golf course, you know, would they give me two to play on a championship course? Could I double my revenue by building the championship course? And that was really, um, you know, he proved the fact that it was, yes, they would give him twice as much money to play this championship golf course. Cause it was an experience they weren't going to get unless they traveled to a resort somewhere and, you know, other places mm-hmm. for sure not in the midwest and it worked i mean cog hill was I, I you know i wouldn't i don't know if it was instantly recognized as one of the best courses in the country but yeah before long i think it was acknowledged as one of the best new courses in the united states you know and had that reputation for for many many years yeah no i mean we go back to um you know that digest list you know with all the dick wilson courses on it and it probably came out as the 50th toughest golf courses i think is what the origin of the golf digest top 100 greatest yep. 100 um, toughest courses and i think Cog's probably among that those first choices mm-hmm. and uh i remember i think we got to 40 in 1990 and uh it was as high as it was ever rated on the digest list and my father i remember my father specifically ordering like 30 or 40 plaques and I was like, well, Dad, why are you going to get some more? They had, you know, the ratings come out every year. He goes, we're never going to be higher than this. you got to look at the courses ahead of you. And, you know, they're all on the ocean. It's Augusta National. It's Pebble Beach. I mean, Cypress Point, you're not going to leapfrog any of these people. Like, <laughs> some of these courses are going to, they're all, they're on everybody's list and they're always going to be there. It's still very um, much the same. There's not a lot of space. There's not, there's not a lot of real estate for, for purchase in the top 40. 
no. And I mean, and they're all really great golf courses. I mean, you know, you always get asked, what's your favorite golf course? I mean, it's the hardest question in the world. So. Yeah. Just, just to finish up on Wilson though, you know, toward the end, um, I think it's in Witten's book that he mentions that uh, your grandfather and Joe Lee were together when they uh, got news of Wilson's death. And I, I think most people agree, or I don't know if, you can verify it, but the, the word is he basically drank himself to death. Um, but they were together at Cog Hill when that news came through. I mean, but t- toward the end, was grandfather and Wilson, were they as, on good terms as, as well as could be given his, Wilson's physical status or did they have a falling out? Yeah, no, certainly. I think, you know, at that point in time, you know, my, my grandfather's working pretty hard for Dick and Dick's getting the, um, he gets the the John D. MacArthur, which was a big, the John D. MacArthur course, which becomes PGA National, right. which is now known as Bay Yeah, But he gets that commission for 36 holes. And he gets that from J.D. MacArthur and uh, John D. MacArthur, pardon me. And, uh, you know, a lot of people thought that would go with the relationship. The East Coast relationship will say that was going to go to Robert Jones. And, and my grandfather fought pretty hard for, for Wilson. Um, and, uh, so no, I think they were, they were still on great terms and, um, you know, they wintered for a couple of years down at Pine Tree after that opens. My father, you know, remembers, you know, they would rent a house there for the winter and, uh, you know, so spending a couple of years, a couple of winters there. Um, so they were in good shape and, uh, I think everyone has faults and my grandfather was, going to take the all the good things that dick did he was you know going to deal with the the things that weren't so great and two you had you kind of had joe so it was it was a partnership so it wasn't you didn't just hire dick yeah and in witten's book he i don't i don't know if i don't know if ron overstates this or or if it's you know if if this is provable but he gives joe lee uh, much of the credit for Wilson's courses, even going back into the you know the early '60s, talking about how Joe would uh, spend more time on site and and over and particularly, which should be said, a lot of the courses that were built outside the U.S. They did a lot of work in the Bahamas and and um, in the you know, Latin Americas. And but you know, if you read Witten's book, it's Joe Lee who's really the the machine who's started driving that operation. And um, maybe that maybe that is true. But you got to know. I'm, I mean, I think your family had probably a much much. I know you had a much much closer relationship with with Joe Lee, and just a different kind of guy, wasn't he? Even just personality wise, and he also had a different golf course design outlook than Wilson did. Yeah, and I think that sort of changes over the years. Um, you know what? Their longtime associate was a woman named Betty Peter. And uh, she was the drafts woman uh, for mostly all of Dick and Joe's work from 19. She, she retires from the military service. So call it in the early fifties, she goes to work for Bill Mitchell for a couple of years, and then she gets hired on by Dick and then Joe comes aboard. But uh, she sort of confessed <laughs> to me, I guess you will, that, that Dick really had the style and the flair for the design that Joe was got things finished. Um, and uh, I think Dick would might've been the muse in, in that regards. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
again, Dick had a lot of other really talented guys working for him. And uh, Betty also thought that Von Hage had a lot more flair for the design than Joe did in the beginning. And, oh, well, even uh, if you look at their solo work, I think you would, you would, it's evident that Von Hege has a lot more flair than, than yeah. me. But when Joe Lee passes many years later, um, there's this big archive that we have. And it's all of the drawings and some from Dick Wilson, but more from Joe, obviously. And there's this huge door we have. And it's, it's basically a shot-by-shot shot golfer's view of the course that they did in Cuba via Real. And uh, it's black and white photos, and they've been, like, taped or adhered, glued to the, the back of this door. And I don't know, it came from apparently Dick Wilson's office, and then it was in storage forever. I worked in Joe's office when I was in college. I never saw it. And then when they cleaned out the storage facility is when the door, I first saw the door. Um, but, you know, we know that Dick didn't really go down there very often, and that was Joe's work. And I wonder if he saved that for the purpose of, you know, this was maybe his first reel where he did all the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like 59, somewhere around there, seven. Um, so I think Joe was definitely a, a, a driving force to the, the work, but I think Dick was ultimately the muse. There were stories about Dick would steal the hotel sheets and take them with him. And then he'd put them out in the field in the bunkers so he could see where the lines of the sand were going to be. You know, that was one of his, Yeah, probably didn't have cans of paint or or whatever it was, but he was using the sheets to kind of see how much, would he see the bottom of the bunker and would he need to raise that or how much higher would the sand flash need to go? And um, so he was, you know, that visual guy. Yeah, I I know. I never heard stories about Lee doing that. But. No, no. And, you know, I'll, I'll just speak candidly. I'm, I've probably played, you know, two dozen Joe Lee golf courses in my travel, especially living down here in the Southeast, you come across them quite, quite frequently. And I'm really hard pressed to find any that I would, you know, recommend anybody else go play. And not that there's, not that there's a, they're bad golf courses or their weaknesses, but as far as like seeing something that is truly interesting, you know, something that engages you, that you, that you would, or, or just, you know, just even the pure aggression of a Dick Wilson design at, at Pine Tree, where it's just like bunkers and shots and everything's kind of in your face. And relentless, relentless, yeah, and and Jolie courses are just more modest and and intentionally so, to be fair. But there's, he's very much a client architect, you know. Uh, and here's the here maybe here's the difference, and I'd love to get your opinion on it too. Yeah, I think maybe because Wilson came up in the 1920s and he had experience working on Marion and and helped build Shinnecock Hills, and he worked with with Toomey and Flynn, and and, and so many designers from that era. They're designing for different clients. They have these magnificent, often magnificent properties to build on. And they're part of, in addition to building like solid architecture and thinking about strategy, they also understand that often there's an element of this golf course that's going to be taken as sort of like an object of art to be admired. And by the time you get into the, you know, the, jo- the Joe Lee era, he's building courses knowing that they're going to be uh, uh, something to be utilized. It's a, it's an a commodity in a way that needs to function for a, a purpose. So they're just, they have fundamentally different, 
you know, ideas about what a golf course can be. And I think Wilson still kind of had that somewhere in his mind that these things have to be, there's something artistic. And, and even just your example about laying the sheets in the bunkers to make sure that, you know, you could see it and it was going to look right. He just had more of that aesthetic uh, component to his designs than, than, than Joe Lee did as a motivating, you know, a primary factor in, in, in his architecture. I think Joe was, you know, he talked about bunker lines, you know, that should rise and fall like the crests on a calm seas, you know, and Dick's work was a little closer to maybe small craft advisory. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then on top of that, you know, he talks about the invention of the trap rake in this like 1973 article, and it talks a little bit about Witten's book. Um, and I think in some regards, that sort of, he's thinking about the business of golf course construction and golf course maintenance more so than Dick. And so his fingers and his shaping sort of start to be, to fit into the model of what's going to fit into the trap rig. And, you know, visually he's still, I've visited a couple of golf courses recently and um, you know, when what would maybe be the prime of Joe's career, which is, you know, the seven middle of the seventies, uh, early eighties and he's moving large amounts of dirt, but he's, he's moving it. Um, he's building up the tees cause he wants that. He wants to be able to see the ball come to, to rest. Um, and in Florida, again, he's working on sort of monotonous sites, you know, former bean fields and swamps. And so he's, his goal is to create a, what he, you know, in his mind is a functional golf course. He wants to, elevate the tees. So the visual, the player understands where they're going and then everything out there, all the hazards are going to be very visual on top of that. And then he's very proud of the way he layers it so that the bunkers, you know, he can have three bunkers and you can see sort of the sea of sand and grass. Um, and you might not tell which one is if it's one, two, three, or four. Um, but you're for sure going to see all of the edges and corners. Um, and then, you know, the golf courses were meant to be played from the middle. So there was, you know, still that concept of, he would call dangling the bait dog legs were the bunkers on the inside and the outside, um, really go through, but ultimately, like you said, client centric, um, you know, he, he knew that the client had to make money if he wanted another job down the, down the road. Yeah, and I, I don't think you can. I mean, from his own perspective, you know, he he probably built the quietest, you know, two hundred or two hundred fifty golf courses of anybody in, in the history of architecture. You know, he's he was prolific in the commissions that he got. He always had work. You know, he he was still building golf courses in the in the nineteen nineties. He had a, just a, a long, rich, fruitful career building golf courses that you know the kind of golf courses that people played. Whereas you know, going back to something I said earlier, you know, when, when Wilson and Trent Jones in the early 60s were really making names for themselves, they were building golf courses that people had, hadn't seen in a long time. They were spectacular in their own way. And I think Joe Lee had a long, lucrative career building golf courses that were just really pleasant and easy to play. And, you know, even just the playability factor was very important to him. As you just mentioned, you know, alluded to, you know, just getting people around and giving them a nice experience that wasn't going to, you know, knock their socks off in any way. Yeah. It was really what 
In, in that same regards, client focused. Um, when the client wanted, somebody came to Joe and said, Hey, build me a championship golf course. He went and did that. I think, you know, like we look at some of the even later work, you know, the Greystone in Maryland and uh, Diamondback, which is up, which was up near Orlando, right across the street from uh, Greenleaf. Oh, yeah. Green, by the way, uh, I've, Diamondback was a really cool golf course that's closed yeah. now, but uh, that was one of Joe's best, I think. It was. And and it has, because it has it was, a lot of style and panache too. The, the, the bunkering there with the flashed up faces and that was gorgeous. And that was kind of the, the call was that, you know, the client who was actually a, a golf course contractor that Joe did a lot of work with, um, a guy named Steve Nugent um, and some partners that put together that, you know, they asked, we want the championship. We want a private equity country club, you know, that was the goal. It was kind of that kind of exclusivity public, I mean, not a public golf course, not a resort course. This is a championship course. People are going to have to play, you know, it's going to be a challenge. And it was a nice site. And um, he went through, but at the same time, you know, like, again, I'm in, I'm working with Joe at that time. And uh, we're also doing a golf course at Bayland Isles. We're redoing the East course, which is a PGA host. It hosted a Ryder cup. You know, Nicholas famously won the championship there and uh, the developer that owns it or the members, I guess it was a developer at that point um, is basically going to take the front nine and string it through the houses. And uh, you know, there's too much value in the real estate to let it be golf. Hmm. And uh, you know, we had a conversation. Well, how do you feel about this? You know, they're tearing apart this iconic, right. Golf course. And uh you know, his thought process was, well, we're going to give the membership what the membership really wants or the golfer really wants isn't the history of the golf course. They want an enjoyable experience. So we're going to give them that. And if that's in between, you know, platted houses or if it's amongst the sand dunes and, you know, swamps, uh, you know, and the hillsides of, you know, Maryland or, you know, that Southern Ridge in Orlando, um, he was going to deliver that enjoyable experience either way. Yeah, and, and by the way, that didn't make Jolie unique. I think that's the kind of the de facto mode of, of anybody working in the business, uh, you know, and maybe especially during that time period. But but even today, you know, if if, the, if, if you need work and the client is hire, willing to hire you to do the work, yeah, it takes a pretty pretty ballsy person to tell the owner, the developer that they shouldn't do it. And it's just, there's not a lot of that in existence. Agreed. Um, yeah. I and mean, then we, uh, I remember asking him about his opinion of different architects. And when we talk about, they had just opened, I don't know, I think it's, I don't remember what it was called, Aberdeen or something like that. It was the mermaid hole that Desmond Muirhead built in mm-hmm. like Delaware Beach, Boynton Beach, Florida. And uh, I was like, Joe, what do, you, what do you think about that? And I think it's sort of a, Personally, it probably offended his personality, offended him yeah. as sort of gauche and avant-garde or whatever. And but his response was, "If I guess if I built all the golf courses, golf would be less interesting." Yeah, <laughs> um, we can we can uh, <laughs> we can incorporate one mermaid hole in golf, right? <laughs> yeah, and it was really funny. Uh, 
you know, back then we, we did blueprints, right. And you'd run down to Delray blueprint and you'd go get golf drawings. And that was part of a job as a, as a 20 something intern <laughs> um, to go down to the blueprint and get the, get the, get the blueprints. And uh, it was also the place where Pete Dye had all of his plans coming out. And so Pete and Joe would end up in a lot of different places together and on Delta flights together. And uh, both Joe and or Pete relayed this exact same conversation to me. They get paired. They're sitting in first class on a way to Atlanta one day. And um, Pete tells Joe, he goes, if I know a client, if I have clients talking to me and he tells me that he's looking at you or me for the design of this new course, I know he doesn't know anything about golf. Because if you, you know, if you're a golfer and you're really going to hire Joe Lee, you're not going to look at Pete Dye no. and vice versa. Yeah, your options would not be that diverse. You know, you, you, you're you not ready to build a golf course if, if <laughs> your two finalists are, you know, uh, North Pole or South Pole. You, you, gotta, <laughs> you really don't know which way you're going to go. And there's a couple of places, I think Harbor Ridge and uh, Grand Harbor, both kind of in the northern you know, what treasure coast, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they have a, a Pete Dye and a, and a Joe Lee course, and they are sort of the yin and yang, you know, and maybe that appeals to the membership and a more broader membership. Cause you know, if you want vanilla or Rocky road, you know, you've got both choices, right? Going back to this idea of what was both critically and popularly uh, popular in the 1950s and 60s, which was sort of this this uh, championship model of golf and the ability to, uh, you know, flex your muscle and challenge the best players. As the operator of, of one of the, you know, historically most successful public play facilities in the United States, do you sense that that uh, mentality still exists? Is there something about you know, the, your clientele that still likes to go to Dubstred and, you know, and take on that, that monster or, or have that feeling that, you know, they're going to wrestle the beast or, or is, has there been a change in that mentality over the years? There is still a, a segment of the market that wants to see, they want to put their game up against a challenge. They want to really market, see how good I am, you know, uh, it's funny. I have friends that come into town and they, Oh dude, we got to go play cog. Let's go play dubs. And it's like, Oh sure. Absolutely. You've been playing. Oh, I haven't played in six months. We really don't want to do that. You know, you know, don't you want to go enjoy yourself? We'll go play pine meadow, which is another Joe Lee golf course that my family operates. Um, it's beautiful. It was actually built on top of an old William Flynn course. And we just had to move the clubhouse. So the routing is all Flynn and it rolls and, goes around these lakes and it is just the most enjoyable round of golf. And it's got all the challenge in the world you want. Um, but every time they choose Dubstred. And that's, you know, because it has that reputation, right? I mean, it's, because it's of- this historic course that has always been, you know, one of the toughest in Chicago and it's hosted a PGA tour event. And it's interesting to, that, you know, for as far as we, we come and we look around and we see, you know, all the, the golf that's being built by the top architects now and these sites. It, it, it is interesting to know that there is still, you know, the the, the T-sheet, you know, the people camping in their cars at Bethpage Black to get on the on the black course hasn't changed in all these years. 
and the same at, at Dubstrid. You know, it, there's something about that that people want. Torrey Pines is not an easy golf course, especially when the rough is up, the south course. And yet, you know, they, they're they busy every single day of the year. Uh, there's it's just there's something about that that still lingers on in the, the golfer's imagination. And that's the sense of adventure that, you know, is golf. It's we've all hit that amazing shot. And we think we get up to it time and time again. We think we're going to do it again. And we all have that really that positive outlook. And. And Dubstrid, again, if you've come to you come to Chicago it's got more elevation and terrain than most any course around the city. Um, it's got these long views in the back nine. And there's a lot of really great golf holes, one after the next. It's just, there's a lot of them that are just demanding. And, uh, you know, play it from the properties. And most guys will, if you could take four holes out of the scorecard, they're going to shoot their normal game. But there's just going to be times when, you know, they they compound their mistakes, and you know, Dubstro just opens the door for every time for you to just compound your mistakes instead of taking your lump yeah. and getting it back and play it and move on to the next hole. So good shots rewarded, and uh, you know, that's the key on yeah. any any golf course. Some more than others, <laughs> like, <laughs> for sure. Um, uh, so, you know, Joe, you and I have never, never spoken before, but I'm going to put you on the, on the spot and ask you the, the Reese Jones remodel and you grew up playing that golf course. So, you know, it as well as anybody did that make the golf, I'm sure it made the golf course better from an in- infrastructure and operational perspective to some degree, but just from a, from a playability and aesthetic perspective, is it, was it an improvement? Did it, did it do what it was designed to do or was something lost that Wilson character forfeited? You know, I think we went down the path of the, the renovation and we, we really, we talked restoration, right? We wanted to bring the character. We wanted to preserve that, that, that Dick Wilson character. And uh, we went out and looked at a lot of the projects that Reese had looked at or renovated and, uh, you know, we liked others, some more than others. Um, and as we went through the process, you know, we ended up with more of the restoration better than the restoration. Um, I mean, that's Reese's golf course now. And uh, my father was really excited. He still is. I mean, he, the big and bold contours of the bunkers and, you know, the, the corners and the levels of the greens and, the infrastructure improvements that were created. Um, he thought that's what he needed to host the tournament. And, uh, you know, we go back to the SAT. Nobody likes the SAT. You take it once. <laughs> you get your score. And uh, I think that's, you know, the tour players who came back year after year, they didn't like it. And, uh, you know, they got their choice to go elsewhere and play their tournaments. In fairness, that was the, in addition to making the the necessary improvements that the the golf course at that age needed, there was an explicitly stated goal that, you know, Cog Hill was going to try to attract the U.S. Open. And so in that respect, speaking of, you know, the SAT and taking it once, I mean, you're, 
a lot. I'm imagining most of the work that Reese did was with this in mind, thinking that you know if we get the U.S. Open, we've won. It's a one-off event, and that's what you're kind of playing for. You're sort of playing for that 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 SAT test. How I imagine there was a, a sense of disappointment when the the Open never materialized. And I guess the yeah, follow-up to that would be, at that point, was there um, any? You can just speak for yourself, not unless you want to speak for other people. But but was there a sense of of regret at all that you know you'd taken this this beloved Joe or Dick Wilson golf course and Joe Lee golf course and didn't quite have that anymore and didn't get the U.S. Open on top of that? I think there was you know regret. I mean, my father and. Um, Reese are good friends. They, he, my father really enjoyed working with Reese and that process. Um, you know, nobody likes to fail. <laughs> and, you know, my grandfather always had the saying, you know, you don't, you don't fail until you stop trying. And uh, the style of the golf course that the USGA wanted in 2007 is different than the style that they want today in 2022. Um, you know, so. I mean, it, if it made sense, certainly at that time, if, if, if anybody knew how to arrange architecture in a way that would attract, you know, the PGA Tour or the USGA, it would be Reese Jones. I mean, he had a track record for that. And the tournaments that had been played on courses that, were, that he set up for major tournaments had were very successful. Um, it was a logical play in in that regard. Um, I guess wonder, and, and, and I'm speaking from someone with, with no familiarity with, with Cog Hill at that time, was it necessary, you know, or, or could it, uh, a better, just a cleaned up version of, of the Dick Wilson course also have gotten you just to that same place as the Reese Jones version did. Yeah, no, I don't want to offend Greg and Reese. They did a ton of great work out there. Um, I mean, this all stems from 1997 when we're hosting the U.S. Amateur and we get like a hard, fast, you know, three inches of rain overnight and we delay the tee times an hour to get the golf course prepared. Mm-hmm. And the USGA is like, well, listen, you don't have the capability of hosting a championship. If you're having a U.S. Open, you can't delay the tee times another hour. And uh, so they took it to Olympia, who was closed two days after the same rain because their bunkers didn't wash, but the whole creek comes up and floods the whole place out. <laughs> yeah. um, and in my mind, it was probably, you know, USGA already knew where they were going to go. It was irrelevant to what we did with the renovation. wasn't going to really change their mind. Um, you know, is the golf course more successful after the renovation? Yes. Yeah, I'm. I'm there's that. There's that, which is ultimately the ultimate answer. You know, as an <laughs> operator, if your tee sheets are full, then you know, and the operations aren't excessively, you know, the, the budget is, is in line and yeah, that's the ultimate, um, that's the ultimate judgment on the golf course. You know, pardon me, do, do I remember, you know, 
the way the second hole used to lay out versus, you know, the, the design of it today. And um, I, you know, sure. We always, everything seems like it could have been better. I think there isn't a golf course out there um, that I've worked on that I haven't gone back to and said, mm, you know, if we just done that over here, it might've been a little better or, you know, I, I'm still a constant tinkerer. And um, the good news is we'll have those opportunities to continue to tinker. Would there ever be a desire to kind of recreate a Dick Wilson version of Cog Hill number four? <laughs> you mean like a Lido? <laughs> um, I think the visual aspects of the golf course, I would, I would like to see the visual aspects of the Dick Wilson course return versus, um, you know, the, the concept of the championship bunker must be flat sand up until the point where it flashes. There isn't a gradual rise um, in the bunker uh, that, that Dick and, and Joe had. Um, to give you the real visual of all the ins and outs of the capes and bays, um, I could foresee a visual restoration of the Dick Wilson stuff. Absolutely. I imagine that, that you have great documentary evidence of everything about that golf course. So if you wanted to undertake, you just, you referenced Lido, but like some other, like a pure restoration, not again, like, I don't know if you'd want to do that, but if so, more than many golf courses, you probably have the material and the resources and the archival uh, documents that you could recreate that course if wanted. Yeah. I mean, we, again, even the course I grew up on is different than the course that was photographed in the, you know, the, the trap rake and maybe the homogenation of the ins and outs, um, the puzzle piece, if you will, that sort of was the iconic Joe Dick look, um, you know, it was a little rougher around the edges when it was first built. Um, and I, I could, I could see in today's environment that being a, a pretty attractive look. And then too, it's the, you know, my father has no interest in charging someone $300 for a round of golf. That's, you know, in some regards, it's even the rates today, you know, wish you could do it for half, you know, and, and make it a viable business opportunity. Um, but that's, you know, that's the cost of maintaining a hundred bunkers and sub air greens and, you know, acres of tea and all the rest of that stuff and, and championship quality. Um, so to, to go in and to try to recapitalize and, or charge it more money for golf, you know, it's probably not the, the business model that we're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess, you know, just obviously from a, from a historical standpoint, you know, you feel like, and you know, Cog Hill's not the only place, but you feel like, there are only so many like true Wilson gems out there. And if, if this one isn't quite what it, what, what he built, then, you know, there's one less, you know, other, other, some of his courses that are, were highly ranked or have been, you know, ranked in the past have undergone some similar modifications and don't really express what, what he laid out. I mean, Derek, I'm running around the world trying to find some of these golf courses that haven't been, you know, 
modified to see if we can, you know, is there, is there a hidden gem just out there? I drove the other day, I had a, an opportunity I looked at in Arkansas and I drove down and um, I drove by Blytheville or Blytheville Country Club, Blytheville Country Club, which said it was a, a Dick Wilson golf course, you know, in Witten's book. And um, I could see where, you know, it was possible that Dick had designed the nine holes and, you know, it was a pretty modest design, but you could see the greens and the corners and the elbows. Um, but there's very little else, you know, they built a, a green pad and that was about it. And, uh, you know, the, the closest, you know, we've hole in the wall and pine tree are probably the best preserved mm-hmm. out of the mix in Florida. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, preserved, I mean, in that regards, um, you know, right. <laughs> 2019. Um, I remember I was, we, uh, I was asked to propose at La Guinta in Caracas, Venezuela. And, uh, you know, the prospect of going to Venezuela was pretty exciting to me. Um, and then I saw the bid list and it was Die, Jemsek and Jones. And I half joking, I was going to run a full paid ad in the magazine, even if I lost. Um, cause I didn't think I'd be in that mix. <laughs> um, and then reaching out to Perry, who I'd worked for in, in Denver. And he said, yeah, the, the, the opportunity came in through the website. And I was like, well, Perry, do you want to, you know, do you want to partner on this deal? Um, you know, cause I'd love to do a Dick Wilson golf course. And if they, they want a fancy name, then let's do that. So we actually ended up partnering. We won the job. And then COVID hit and we're still waiting for anything to happen. (laughs) Um, But that was, that was pretty exciting. And uh, I still keep in contact with the guys down there and uh, I'm working on another project in Colombia, South America. It was an old Joe league golf course called Cajarel, um, which is among Joe's better designs. And uh, you know, there's some things that, there's one golf course that still kind of exists in the, in the Bahamas at treasure at treasure K, which would, again, could be an amazing opportunity, but every decade or so a hurricane blows through there and Island sort of gets reset. And then, you know, others, you know, Doral, Bay Hill, La Costa, you know, we'll keep looking. There's a couple other interesting courses out there. And I think, you know, even as we look at, that that era of design, um, you know, Jolie built that huge pad for the green and everything got pushed up. Um, and it was, you know, to create good drainage for the bunkers. And then the green, of course, had and visualization. And then the green had to be higher than that. But I think there's a lot of really great opportunities to, to go back and make some of these golf courses a little more modern looking, but still keep that, that visual appeal that Dick and and in some regards, Joe, we're trying to do. We may finally be in a phase where clubs and architects are interested in restoring and honoring the original design ideas of Dick Wilson, Robert Trent Jones, and their contemporaries. This would be somewhat ironic. Those architects had no problem modernizing and changing the courses that came before them. It was done not with malice and usually at the behest of the clubs or outside organizations such as the USGA. But there was simply no sense of preservation in the 50s and 60s, in golf design or much of anything else. Science, art, and culture were developing fast, and all eyes were looking forward, not backwards. Wilson, Trent Jones, and their peers were very much a part of that outlook. 
In fact, it's the remodeling that Trent Jones, Wilson, Jeff Cornish, and others performed on those old courses of the teens and 20s that's given work and credibility to the current age of restoration. The very people who would be responsible now for honoring and returning the architecture of Wilson are in the place they're in because of Wilson, to focus on him, who changed the original design and bunkering at places like Seminole, Bel Air, Ronamink, and Scioto. Some of the best modern renovation work, therefore, is the result of others erasing the things he did to famous courses. Does Wilson deserve a level of respect that he didn't offer to the other courses he worked on? For all the back and forth and changes in taste, I think history does matter, and there are a number of courses that would be better off if they maintained a truer representation of Wilson's design thoughts. Origins are important. Hopefully, Joe Jemsek gets his way in the endeavor to carry out that mission, starting with his own family's course. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Jemsek for joining me. Please remember to share and subscribe to Feed the Ball wherever you get your podcasts, and leave a star rating and review. Follow me at Feed the Ball on Twitter and Instagram, and go to feedtheball.com to find past episodes with dozens of architects and writers deep in the archives, free of charge. Lastly, do your laundry in cold water. No, this is not a put-on. Washing in cold is one of the simplest things you can do to lower your energy costs and, in turn, help the environment. Thanks again for listening. Thanks to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios. Adios.